0: This is Chapter Twelve of *Tom Sawyer Abroad*. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. *Tom Sawyer Abroad*, Chapter Twelve, Jim Standing Siege. The next few meals was pretty sandy, but that don't make no difference when you're hungry. When you ain't, it ain't no satisfaction to eat anyway. And so a little grit in the meat ain't no particular drawback, as far as I can see. Then we struck the east end of the desert at last, sailing on a northeast course. Away off on the edge of the sand, in a soft pinky light, we see three little sharp roofs like tents, and Tom says, It's the pyramids of Egypt. It made my heart fairly jump. You see, I had seen a many and a many a picture of them and heard tell about them a hundred times, and yet to come on them all of a sudden that way and find they was real, instead of imaginations, most knocked the breath out of me with surprise. It's a curious thing that the more you hear about a grand and big and bully thing or person, the more it kind of dreamies out, as you may say, and gets to be a big, dim, wavery figure made out of moonshine and nothing solid to it it's just so with george washington and the same with them pyramids and moreover besides the thing they always said about them seemed to me to be stretchers there was a feller come to the sunday school once and had a picture of them and made a speech and said the biggest pyramid covered thirteen acres and was most five hundred foot high just a steep mountain all built out of hunks of stone as big as a bureau and laid up in perfectly regular layers like stair-steps thirteen acres you see for just one building it's a farm if it hadn't been in sunday school i would have judged it was a lie and outside i was certain of it and he said there was a hole in the pyramid and you could go in there with candles, and go ever so far up a long slanting tunnel, and come to a large room in the stomach of that stone mountain, and there you would find a big stone chest with a king in it, four thousand years old. I said to myself then, if that ain't a lie, I will eat that king if they will fetch him, for even Methuselah weren't that old, and nobody claims it as we come a little nearer, we see the yaller sand come to an end in a long, straight edge like a blanket, and onto it was joined, edge to edge, a wide country of bright green, with a snaky stripe crooking through it, and Tom said, it was the Nile. It made my heart jump again, for the Nile was another thing that wasn't real to me. Now I can tell you one thing, which is dead certain— If you will fool along over three thousand miles of yaller sand, all glimmering with heat so it makes your eyes water to look at it, and you've been a considerable part of a week doing it, the green country will look so like home and heaven to you that it will make your eyes water again. It was just so with me, and the same with Jim. And when Jim got so he could believe it was the land of Egypt he was looking at, he wouldn't enter it standing up, but got down on his knees and took off his hat, because he said it wasn't fitting for a humble poor nigger to come any other way where such men had been as Moses and Joseph and Pharaoh and the other prophets. He was a Presbyterian and had a most deep respect for Moses, which was a Presbyterian too, he said. He was all stirred up and says, "'It's the land of Egypt, the land of Egypt, and I's loud to look at it with my own eyes.' and as de river dat was turned to blood and as lookin at de very same ground where de plagues was and de lice and de frogs and de locusts and de hail and where de marked the doorposts and the angel o de lord come by in the darkness o de night and slew de first-born in all de land as egypt old jim ain't worthy to see this day and then he just broke down and cried he was so thankful so between him and tom there was talk enough. Jim being excited because the land was so full of history. Joseph and his brethren, Moses and the bulrushes, Jacob coming down into Egypt to buy corn, the silver cup and the sack, and all them interesting things. And Tom just as excited too because the land was so full of history that was in his line about New Redden and Bed and such like monstrous giants that made Jim's wool rise, and a raft of other Arabian Nights folks which the half of them never done the things they let on they done, I don't believe. Then we struck a disappointment. For one of them early morning fog started up, and it weren't no use to sail over the top of it, because we would go by Egypt, sure. So we judged it was best to set her by compass straight for the place where the pyramids was getting blurred and blotted out, and then drop low and skin along pretty close to the ground and keep a sharp lookout. Tom took the helm— I stood by to let go the anchor, and Jim, he straddled the bow to dig through the fog with his eyes and watch out for danger ahead. We went along the steady gait, but not very fast, and the fog got solider and solider, so solid that Jim looked dim and ragged and smoky through it. It was awful still, and we talked low and was anxious. Now and then Jim would say, "'Heist her a pint, Mars Tom, heist her,' and up she would skip a foot or two, and we would slide right over a flat-roofed mud cabin with people that had been asleep on it just beginning to turn out and gap and stretch and once when a feller was clear up on his hind legs so he could gap and stretch better we took him a blip in the back and knocked him off by and by after about an hour and everything dead still and we a straining our ears for sounds and holding our breath the fog thinned a little, very sudden, and Jim sung out in an awful scare, "'Oh, for the land's sake, set her back-mars, Tom, Here's the biggest giant out in the Arabian Nights a-comin' for us!' And he went over backwards in the boat. Tom slammed on the back-action, and as we slowed to a standstill, a man's face as big as our house at home looked in over the gunnel, same as a house looks out of its windows, and I laid down and died.' I must have been clear dead and gone for as much as a minute or more. Then I come to, and Tom had hitched a boat-hook onto the lower lip of the giant, and was holding the balloon steady with it, whilst he canted his head back and got a good long look up at that awful face. Jim was on his knees with his hands clasped, gazing up at the thing in a begging way and working his lips, but not getting anything out. I took only just a glimpse, and was fading out again, but Tom says— He ain't alive, you fools. It's the Sphinx. I never see Tom look so little and like a fly, but that was because the giant's head was so big and awful. Awful, yes, so it was, but not dreadful any more, because you could see it was a noble face and kind of sad and not thinking about you, but about other things and larger. It was stone, reddish stone, and its nose and ears battered, and that give it an abused look, "'and you felt sorry for it for that. "'We stood off a piece and sailed around it and over it, "'and it was just grand. "'It was a man's head, or maybe a woman's, "'on a tiger's body, a hundred and twenty-five foot long, "'and there was a dear little temple between its front paws. "'All but the head used to be under the sand "'for hundreds of years, maybe thousands, "'but they had just lately dug the sand away "'and found that little temple.' It took a power of sand to bury that critter, most of as much as it would to bury a steamboat, I reckon. We landed Jim on top of the head, with an American flag to protect him, it being a foreign land. Then we sailed off to this and that and t'other distance to get what Tom called effects and perspectives and proportions, and Jim he done the best he could, striking all the different kinds of attitudes and positions he could study up but standing on his head and working his legs the way a frog does was the best. The further we got away, the littler Jim got, and the grander the Sphinx got, till at last it was only a clothespin on a dome, as you might say. That's the way perspective brings out the correct proportions, Tom said. He said, Julius Caesar's niggers didn't know how big he was. They was too close to him. Then we sailed off further and further, till we couldn't see Jim at all any more— and then that great figure was at its noblest a-gazing out over the Nile Valley so still and solemn and lonesome, and all the little shabby huts and things that was scattered about it clean disappeared and gone, and nothing around it now but a soft wide spread of yaller velvet, which was the sand. That was the right place to stop, and we done it. We sat there a-lookin' and a-thinkin' for a half an hour. Nobody a saying anything, for it made us feel quiet and kind of solemn to remember it had been looking over that valley just that same way and thinking its awful thoughts all to itself for thousands of years, and nobody can't find out what they are to this day. At last I took up the glass and see some little black things a capering around on that velvet carpet, and some more a-climbing up the critter's back, and then I see two or three wee puffs of white smoke, and told Tom to look. He done it and says, "'They're bugs. No?' hold on they why i believe they're men yes it's men men and horses both they're hauling a long ladder up onto the sphinx back now ain't that odd and now they're trying to lean it up but a... there's some more puffs of smoke it's guns huck they're after jim we clapped on the power and went for them a biling. We was there in no time, and come a-whizzing down amongst them, and they broke and scattered every which way, and some that was climbing the ladder after Jim let go all holts and fell. We soared up, and found him laying on top of the head, panting and most tuckered out, partly from howling for help, and partly from scare. He had been standing a siege a long time, a week, he said, but it weren't so. It only just seemed so to him, because they was crowding him so.' They had shot at him and rained the bullets all around him, but he weren't hit, and when they found he wouldn't stand up and the bullets couldn't get at him when he was laying down, they went for the ladder, and then he knowed it was all up with him if we didn't come pretty quick. Tom was very indignant and asked him why he didn't show the flag and command them to get in the name of the United States. Jim said he'd done it, but they never paid no attention. Tom said he would have this thing looked into at Washington, and says— "'You'll see that they'll have to apologize for insulting the flag "'and pay an indemnity, too, on top of it, even if they get off that easy.' "'Jim says, "'What's an indemnity, Mars Tom?' "'It's cash. That's what it is.' "'Who gets it, Mars Tom?' "'Why, we do.' "'And who gets the apology?' "'The United States. Or we can take whichever we please. "'We can take the apology, if we want to, and let the government take the money.' "'How much money will it be, Mars Tom?' "'Well, in an aggravated case like this one, "'it will be at least three dollars apiece, "'and I don't know but more.' "'Well, then, we'll take the money, Mars, Tom, Blamed blame the apology. "'Ain't that your notion, too? "'And ain't it your own, Huck?' "'We talked it over a little, "'and allowed that that was as good a way as any, "'so we agreed to take the money. "'It was a new business to me, "'and I asked Tom if countries always apologized "'when they had done wrong, "'and he says, "'Yes, the little ones does.' We was sailing around, examining the pyramids, you know, and now we soared up and roosted on the flat top of the biggest one, and found it was just like what the man said in the Sunday school. It was like four pairs of stairs that starts broad at the bottom, and slants up, and comes together in a point at the top. Only these stair-steps couldn't be clumbed the way you climb other stairs, no, for each step was as high as your chin, and you have to be boosted up from behind.' The two other pyramids weren't far away, and the people moving about on the sand between looked like bugs crawling. We were so high above them. Tom, he couldn't hold himself. He was so worked up with gladness and astonishment to be in such a celebrated place, and he just dripped history from every pore, seemed to me. He said he couldn't scarcely believe he was standing on the very identical spot the prince flew from on the bronze horse. It was in the Arabian night's times, he said somebody give the prince a bronze horse with a peg in its shoulder, and he could get on him and fly through the air like a bird and go all over the world and steer it by turning the peg and fly high or low and land wherever he wanted to. When he got done telling it, there was one of them uncomfortable silences that comes, you know, when a person has been telling a whopper and you feel sorry for him and wish you could think of some way to change the subject and let him down easy— but get stuck and don't see no way, and before you can pull your mind together and do something, that silence has got in and spread itself and done the business. I was embarrassed. Jim, he was embarrassed, and neither of us couldn't say a word. Well, Tom, he glowered at me a minute and says, Come out with it. What do you think? I says, Tom Sawyer, you don't believe that yourself. What's the reason I don't? What's to hinder me? "'There's one thing to hand to you. "'It couldn't happen, that's all. "'What's the reason it couldn't happen?' "'You tell me the reason it could happen.' "'This balloon is a good enough reason it could happen, I should reckon. "'Why is it?' "'Why is it? "'I never saw such an idiot. "'Ain't this balloon and the bronze horse the same thing under different names?' "'No, they're not. "'One is a balloon and the other's a horse. "'It's very different.' "'Next you'll be saying a house and a cow's the same thing.' "'By Jackson, Huck's got him again. "'They ain't no wiggling out of that. "'Shut your head, Jim. "'You don't know what you're talking about. "'And Huck don't. "'Look here, Huck. "'I'll make it plain to you, so you can understand. "'You see, it ain't the mere form "'that's got anything to do with their being similar or unsimilar. "'It's the principle involved. "'And the principle is the same in both. "'Don't you see now?' "'I turned it over in my mind and says,' Tom, it ain't no use. Principles is all very well, but they don't get around that one big fact that the thing that a balloon can do ain't no sort of proof of what a horse can do. Shucks, Huck, you don't get the idea at all. Now, look here a minute. It's perfectly plain. Don't we fly through the air? Yes. Very well. Don't we fly high or fly low just as we please? Yes. Don't we steer whichever way we want to? Yes. And don't we land when and where we please? Yes. How do we move the balloon and steer it? By touching the buttons. Now I reckon the thing is clear to you at last. In the other case, the moving and steering was done by turning a peg. We touch a button, the prince turned a peg. There ain't an atom of difference, you see. I knowed I could get it through your head if I stuck to it long enough. He felt so happy he began begun to whistle, but me and Jim was silent. So he broke off, surprised, and says, "Looky here, Huck Finn, don't you see it yet?' I says, "'Tom Sawyer, I want to ask you some questions.' "'Go ahead,' he says, and I see Jim chirk up to listen. "'As I understand it, the whole thing is in the buttons and the peg. The rest ain't of no consequence. A button is one shape, a peg is another shape, but that ain't any matter.' No, that ain't any matter, as long as they've both got the same power. All right, then. What is the power that's in a candle and in a match? It's the fire. It's the same in both, then. Yes, just the same in both. All right. Suppose I set fire to a carpenter shop with a match. What will happen to that carpenter shop? She'll burn up. And suppose I set fire to this pyramid with a candle. Will she burn up? Of course she won't. All right. Now the fire's the same both times. Why does the shop burn and the pyramid don't? Because the pyramid can't burn. Aha! And a horse can't fly. My land, if Huck ain't got him again. Huck's landed him high and dry this time, I tell you. It's the smartest tribe I ever see a body walk into, and if I— But Jim was so full of laugh, he got so strangled and couldn't go on, and Tom was that mad to see how neat I had floored him, and turned his own argument agin him, and knocked him all to rags and flinders with it, that all he could manage to say was that whenever he heard me and Jim try to argue it made him ashamed of the human race. I never said nothing. I was feeling pretty well satisfied. When I have got the best of a person that way, it ain't my way to go around crowing about it the way some people does, for I consider that if I was in his place I wouldn't wish him to crow over me. It's better to be generous.' That's what I think. End of chapter 12